So today we'll be reading from Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 2 and 12 through 17. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Starting in verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, Weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Welcome, everybody. If you want, you can grab a Bible. There should be one near you. You can open your phone. You can follow along in Joel chapter 2. On February 20th, 1971, the United States of America was thrust into a very accidental panic. Now, if you know your history at all, 1971, the United States is in the middle of the Vietnam War, the Cold War is raging, and the very threat of nuclear apocalypse feels very real. So things are testy in the United States to say the least. Pressure's high, tension is high, especially because of the threat of nuclear warfare. And so the United States develops a system. Like, what are we going to do if this threat becomes real? And so they developed the emergency broadcast system in 1963, which is a way of sending warnings to the entire United States. So a message would go to broadcasters, broadcasters would shut down regular programming, they'd read a special script, and then all programming and networks would stop so that the president could come on air, whether that was radio or TV, and deliver a message in up to 10 minutes. System felt essential. Like, if we're going to survive a nuclear holocaust, we have to have some kind of communication system in place. So they would test it every single Saturday. Every Saturday, they would send a test message to the broadcasters to see if the system was working. A test message. But on February 20th, 1971, somehow, a very real alert was sent to broadcasters all over the United States. And they heard the code words, like all of the important information that you would need to know, and so broadcasters sprang into action immediately. And they began to cut programming, read the special script, and then go off air silently so that the president could come on, which never happened. Because there was no threat of nuclear apocalypse, 
but there was a message of a nuclear threat. That lasted for 40 minutes. For 40 minutes, the United States believed it was about to be totally destroyed. People lost their mind. Radios went off air. People began to call their radio station. And even authorities had no idea what was happening and why it was going on. And so authorities at NORAD began to try to, like, how do we turn it off, which you think would be an easy thing to do. Turns out, not easy to turn off a nuclear signal. They tried to find the passcode to turn off the signal and failed to turn it off six different times over the 40-minute period. So the broadcast message just continues to go. Finally, they cancel it after 40 minutes, and when they investigate what had gone wrong, they realize that someone had just put the wrong tape on and sent this alert over the air. This was the very first major test of the brand new emergency broadcast system, and it was a total failure. If you have an alarm system, I feel like the one thing that you want it to do is accurately tell people if a threat is actually impending. I didn't grow up with the threat of nuclear war, obviously. Um, but I did, when I, was in, when I was growing up as a kid, my mom had an alarm system. She was, I was like raised by a single mom, and so it was like, oh, we, gotta have to single, we have to have an alarm system in our house. And that alarm system would go off once a week. Just once a week. I don't know if you ever lived in a home with an alarm system, but for some reason it is always the scariest window in the house that the alarm system would go off on. So we had like one dog, my mom, I'm 11, the alarm system would go off. You get a phone call from Peak Alarm, and they'd be like, hey, the downstairs basement window it's open. Do you want us to call the police? And you'd be like, well, is someone in here? And they'd be like, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. And so then my mom, my mom would have like a bottle of mace in a, in a lab and would be going downstairs, just turning around, being like, I'm going to protect my son. No one was ever in our house. No, we, that alarm went off until I was like 18 and moved out. And it never once was anybody in our house. That alarm system was constantly wrong which feels just like a terrible investment. If you have an alarm system, the one thing that you need it to do, the one job you need it to do accurately is to tell you if threat is impending. And you need it to tell you if a threat is impending because it's supposed to trigger a response from us. Should my mom call the police or should she nervously walk into our basement with a bottle of pocket mace? What is the appropriate response to the alarm system that is going on? Alarms are important because they trigger a response. They tell us that we need to respond a certain way. That's true of a nuclear holocaust. It's true of an alarm system going off in your home. It's true when your body sends you messages. I recently tore my ACL. Lots of alarm systems went off immediately that I should have listened to. Instead, I decided to stand up where I heard lots of popping and pain, additional alarm systems that I probably should have listened to. Sometimes we have feelings that produce alarm systems, whether it's like feelings like guilt, feelings like shame, even though that's a bad one. It tells us that something is wrong internally. Just like an outside alarm tells us that something is wrong externally, those kind of warning systems, those kind of warning signals, they tell us that something is off and that we should be responding. Which is why it is so important that these alarm systems work accurately. They trigger a response. They give us time to evaluate a situation and make decisions. But this is exactly what is happening in Joel chapter 2. Joel is a prophet, a minor prophet, which means he wrote a small book, not that he's less important. And we said last week that Joel has one primary job. 
He is supposed to remind the people of God who God is and what it looks like to be his people. So that's his primary vocation. And you have lots of prophets. That's the vocation of all the prophets at some level, to remind the people who God is and what it means to be God's people. They do this in different ways. Some prophets are like lawyers who take the Old Testament text and they make a case against Israel. Some are like performance artists who do strange things in order to reveal or evoke something. Joel, in chapter 2, is trying to remind the people of God who God is and who they are supposed to be by sounding an alarm. He's trying to get Israel to be reflective. He's trying to get them to, to think about what is happening around them, to hear a warning system so that it will trigger a response in them that would then make them make different decisions. So in the first chapter, he did that by saying, hey, there's this big moment that's coming in your life. Would you get reflective? And now he's blowing an alarm. And he says, hey, would you respond? What are you going to do in light of this message? So the first thing that happens when an alarm sounds for Joel and for us in our own life is we have to figure out what is happening. So if you look at Joel chapter 2, verse 1, you'll see this moment. The text says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. So Joel sounds an alarm, and the first thing that you do when you hear an alarm is you take a moment to say, okay, what is the alarm about? And in Joel chapter 2, verse 1, it is the day of the Lord. We talked about the day of the Lord a little bit last week, but the day of the Lord is prophetic language that's used throughout the story of the Bible. And it's meant to be a phrase that is loaded with hope. Loaded for hope with Israel, loaded for hope for the world. Because this phrase is meant to mean that God is invading human history to change it, to fix it, to, to undo what is broken, to fix what is painful, to heal what is hurt, to overthrow what is evil and unjust. It's this big moment, this hopeful moment and for Israel, it's always connected to being rescued from Egypt or being rescued from Babylon, like this big moment that God's going to intervene and he's going to rescue the world. But in Joel, all of a sudden, Israel finds themselves on the wrong side of the day of the Lord. They have become like the nations around them, oppressive, sinful, evil, rejecting God in his way. And so now they find themselves on the other side of the day of the Lord. What's interesting, though, about Joel is that he's not interested in telling us why Israel's on the other side of that. He's not interested in telling us, like, what they did or any of those things. Instead, what Joel wants to do is sound the alarm and almost draw our attention to the effects that are happening around them. It's almost like Joel is pointing out the symptoms of something pointing out the symptoms of the disease to maybe help us understand that something is wrong. And so he does this in very poetic and intense language. In verse 2, he says, darkness and gloom is on the land. In verse 3, he says, fires are devouring the land. In verse 4 and 5, he's like, violence and war is here. In verse 6, anguish is being felt by the people. In verse 9, cities feel unsafe. In verse 11, he said, it even feels like we're separated from God, alienated from him. And by the end of this poetic description, you have this very potent image, this like visceral alarm that something is wrong in Israel. Joel doesn't tell us what is wrong necessarily. He just says something is wrong. 
Something is happening. Something is broken, and Israel needs to pay attention to it. So when I read that, and I think I do this every time I read this kind of language in the Bible, oftentimes I'm like, why? Why does it need to be so intense, though? Like, why, why is the language in Joel so intense, so poetic? And if you've read prophets, you probably think that too. You're like, what is happening here? And I think that the, the key to understanding what Joel is doing is that Joel is helping Israel see that the effects of evil are actually painful and devastating. That the, the effects of sin and brokenness and evil, that they are actually painful and they are actually devastating and they actually hurt. I think we do this in our own day that we will hear concepts like sin or evil when we're reading scripture and it is really easy to think about them in abstract terms. It's like maybe like religious ideas or religious like, like abstractions uh, that don't always have a lot of like play in our everyday life. How many people in here uh, watch The Good Place? Yeah, so if you've seen The Good Place, there's like a theological structure that underwrites that movie or the, the TV show. And it's amazing if you haven't seen it, but you have this like, the whole narrative is that these, like, these like, divine accountants who live somewhere, and when you do something bad, it like adds a tick. If you do something good, that's like a way of counting. But the things that are bad are so random. But I think my favorite one is the first person to call ultimate Frisbee ultimate. It goes straight to the bad place. Right? They don't make none of the things. Like, they don't make any sense. They're abstract. They're totally removed from everyday life. And I think we actually do the same thing when we look at sin in Scripture. It feels abstract and removed from everyday life. Like it's not grounded in relationships. It's not grounded in how it feels. It's not grounded in what it actually does. But Joel is grounding evil in real life. He's showing us that sin is not some arbitrary accounting system, but sin is more like a disease or a parasite that is actually killing us in the world. It causes real pain, real agony, real separation from God. He's like, I don't want you to think about this in abstract terms. I don't want you to think about this in a way that it's just like, do the right thing because it's whatever, and it's an empty religious gesture. He's like, no, these things matter because they hurt, because they have effect. They do something to you and to others and to your relationship with God. And he's like, look at it. It causes agony. So he blows the alarm. He's like, do you see that the effects of evil are real and painful? And even seeing it is actually its own kind of alarm system. To experience the anguish of evil is its own alarm system. It reveals that something is not right. That something is broken. The pain of an injury reveals that something is broken in the body. Guilt in our heart reveals that something is wrong. Shame even reveals that something is off, dislocated. And it calls us to pay attention. C.S. Lewis, the writer, I always like the way he says it. He says that God whispers to us in our pleasure. He speaks in our conscience, but he often shouts in our pain. That if we're paying attention, something is being revealed to us. It reveals that all is not right in the world or in our lives. 
This is true for Israel as a people, and it is true for us as a people, and even as individuals or families. We experience shame and guilt in our own hearts, not equating those two. But it reveals that something is off. If we feel isolated or dislocated or alone, that also reveals that something is off, that somehow we have become separated from God or self or others. That moment of like dislocation should reveal something. It's a warning bell to say something is off. Addiction and coping mechanisms, those are warning alarms to tell us something is off. The pain that we notice or that is revealed to us by someone like Joel is intended to warn. But it's not intended to leave us with the warning, just to like sit with it so you can think about it. The intention of this alarm is like a nuclear alarm. It is meant to call us to respond to it. And that is the real purpose of Joel's alarm. He wants to wake Israel up and call them to respond. And this is maybe the most beautiful moment in the text And this is one of the most beautiful moments in the Old Testament. Joel's like, how are you supposed to respond? And then in verse 12, he says this, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Yet even now, The Apostle Paul in the New Testament uses a really similar turn of phrase that I think is also very beautiful. In Ephesians, he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. There's another moment that I also think is really beautiful when a leper comes to Jesus. And the leper comes to Jesus and says, Lord, if you want, you can make me clean. And Jesus reaches out his hand and says, I do want become clean. See, the prophets have two primary jobs. This is what we said at the beginning. It's one job, to remind the people what it looks like to be God's people. But even more importantly, their job is to remind them who their God is. And so to do this in Joel, Joel uses this phrase, this verse, that God is gracious and merciful. And Joel didn't write that text. It comes all the way from the Exodus. When God is like reintroducing himself to his people, he tells them that I am the Lord your God. I am gracious and merciful. When in the first like formal introduction of God to his people, this is like, this is how I should be known. This is who I am. I am gracious and merciful. And it shows up again and again in the Psalms, Jonah, other prophets, this continual reminder of who God is, that he is gracious and and merciful. And now in Joel, he uses this constant refrain in Israel's life to again remind the people who their God is. Because that, first and foremost, is the most important thing that Israel can do when they hear the alarm, is to remember who their God is. They see the devastation of sin. They see the destruction of evil. They feel the agony in their own hearts and in their own lives and in their families and in their nation. And Joel's like, hey, before you do anything, would you remember that God is gracious and merciful? 
As the reality of your sin is revealed, remember that he is gracious and merciful. As the destruction is rampant around you, as it looks like fire or blackness or doom, all the poetic language that Joel uses, would you first remember that your God is gracious and merciful? Before anything else, would you remember that God is gracious and merciful? Then, out of the overflow of that grace and mercy, Joel says, return. Return to the one who is gracious and merciful. Return to the one who wants to heal. I know that we use this language a lot. We talk about this language a lot in the church, but I still think that this moment, we see this theme play out all throughout Scripture. God turning to his people despite them rejecting him. It's really the heart of the gospel story. And yet, no matter how many times we tell this story, it is still so wild. Israel has rejected God again and again. They have become violent and greedy, oppressive. They've abandoned his ways. They've built temples to other gods. And yet, even now, God says, come home. I don't know, I was, about this, I was trying to get my head around this all weekend, and for some reason it was just like really poignant. I don't even know how to express that kind of love. Like, I don't have words for it, I don't have feelings for it, probably because I believe that I've been loved very well by people here, by my family, and yet I can't even comprehend at the smallest level what that kind of love looks like. And so I think what it does, why it's so hard to then know what to do with it, is you're like, I don't know how to comprehend that, so how am I supposed to respond to it, to that kind of marvelous love? I don't know how to give it, so how am I supposed to know how to receive it? And I think that's one of the reasons that Joel just uses this very profound but simple line, where he's like, he's like, God is gracious and merciful, come home. And you're like, well, what do I do? How do I receive that? And he says, rend your hearts, not your garments. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Rending your garments or tearing your garments was a common way of trying to lament. Right? Something bad would happen, someone would die, you'd do something wrong, whatever. You would tear your garments, you would take ash or dirt, and you would rub it on your face, and it would be a visible display that something was broken. Right? So your actions were mirroring what you were experiencing out here. It's a powerful symbol. We do it on Ash Wednesday in some ways. It's a very powerful symbol, and it has powerful implications. That's how we experience it. But, as we all know with any of our practices of faith, it could simply become a religious display. And so instead, Joel says, rend your hearts. Don't hide yourself behind religious performance. Don't shield behind perfectionism. Instead, rend your hearts. The writer, I think Brene Brown, puts a really helpful language around this because she refers to this as vulnerability armor. She says this, she says, we put on armor, we use our thoughts, our emotions, and our behaviors as weapons. 
But we must take off the armor, put down the weapons, and show up and let ourselves be seen. We just show up and let ourselves be seen. If you put this moment in the context of Joel, Joel is like, you must show up and let yourself actually be seen by God. To rend your heart, not your garments. Don't make this about religious performance or religious perfection. Instead, show up in vulnerability. We need this. Like We so desperately need to show up in vulnerability because it's the only thing It's the only practice that makes sense of what comes next in the chapter of Joel. It's the only thing that makes us ready for this next piece. Because Joel goes on right after this. He says, God is gracious, he's merciful. And then he adds this, again, marvelous moment where he says, who knows whether God will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. In Israel's worship life, a grain offering is something you give to God, or a drink offering is something you give to God. You'd go to the temple, you'd have this grain offering, you'd give it, and it was like a way of worshiping God. And it was intended to remind the people of God's provision for them, especially during the Exodus, where God provided for them and rescued them and kept them. And so these practices were ways of them reminding themselves that God cared for them and was with them. But it was something they were supposed to give to God, which is like an amazing moment. So here's this thing that the people of Israel are supposed to give to God, and God's like, hold on, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sound an alarm because you've ruined everything. I'm going to call you home. I'm going to offer you mercy. I'm going I'm I'm to give you all that I have. And then he's like, and here, and I'm even going to give you all the means of knowing me and of returning home. I'm going to sound the alarm. I'm going to offer you grace. And even here, to enter into worship, I'm going to give you all the means of worship, of relationship, of provision. I'm going to provide the means of our relationship. Now, on one level, for ancient Israel, that means like what's happening in the temple, that God would actually provide the means of worshiping him in the temple but Joel, I don't think, has any concept of how, of how far that promise is going to get unfolded. Joel could not fully grasp what that hope would mean for the world. Nobody could. Until Jesus would take the bread, the grain, break it and say, this is my body for you. That I am making provision for the people. The hope of Joel's promise in this moment is taken up in Jesus who provides a way home. By himself absorbing all of our evil and all of our destruction and all of our sin into himself. This is exactly what we remember as we come to this table. That God has provided for himself and his people the grain off that we would have the means of worshiping and knowing God. That's such a marvelous story, that God sounds the alarm, 
calls us home, and then provides all the means to get there. That is the story that we remember every single time that we come to this table, that God is sounding the alarm, calling us home, and providing all the means to be with him, space at his table, welcome in his home. So, Monsieur, let's remember that. In a second, we're going to actually do that. We'll come to this table. And as you come, maybe even before you get to this table, and as we sing, and as we worship, and as we pray, is there an alarm, a warning system that is sounding that you need to pay attention to, that you need to respond to? Something painful in your own heart, something painful in your own mind, something painful in a relationship, something painful outside of you that that should be triggering a response, saying that something is broken, that something is off? Is there an alarm that you need to respond to? Would you reflect on that and then bring it to the table? Maybe you've never done that before. You're like, I don't even know what that practice would be. And so maybe just something very simple is you named whatever that thing is, bring it to the table and just tell God, like, God, I hear your alarm. I hear the warning system. Would you, would you give me mercy? That can be it. But would you bring that to this space? And as you come, would you hear Joel's invitation into actual vulnerability before God to say, would you rend your hearts, not your garments? And all that means in this moment is would you be honest? about the places of pain and hurt, brokenness that are being revealed. Be honest as you bring those to the table. And then, Missio, most importantly, as you break the bread, as you dip it and you receive it, would you receive God's blessing, his offer of mercy to you? And again, maybe that's like a weird abstract thing. And so, as you've said, God... I hear the alarm, give me mercy. Then when you take the bread, just tell yourself right there in prayer to, to God, would you just say, God, I receive your mercy. That can be the whole practice. But as we come to the table, would you hear the alarm? Would you rend your heart? And would you receive mercy? Let's see, let's pray. God, I just thank you that if we know very little about you, that we've never read your story, maybe we don't pray much, maybe we don't know that much about you. God, thank you that, that almost anywhere we open, anywhere we look in your story, what we'll see is you again and again offering your people mercy, sounding alarms, naming pain, offering mercy and providing a way home. So would we hear that today loud and clear, and would we remember who you are? Yeah, God, would we remember who you are? You're gracious and merciful. So God, let us hear that and then respond. In your name we pray. Amen. Missio, we're going to continue worshiping with song. 
you're ready to come to the table, we invite you. The bread is gluten-free. The cup is non-alcoholic. And as always, there's people here who want to pray with you. And so maybe the prayer that I gave you is like, you want some more tools or someone just to work it through with you? Would you just walk over here to somebody who would pray for you? Let's continue worshiping.
So if you're able to stand, please do. And a benediction is just a blessing. So that way, as we leave from here and go about our weeks, we go knowing the truth of who our God is. So missio. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Go, Missio, in the grace of God, and be the church this week. Amen.